Hey, everybody. I'm Amy Scott. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. It is Tuesday, June 6th. And I'm Kimberly Adams. Thank you for joining us, everyone, for our weekly deep dive into a single topic. And today we're talking about the Supreme Court. It's the time of year when the court usually issues a bunch of important decisions on the highest profile cases right before it goes on summer recess. This year, we're expecting decisions on everything from affirmative action to student debt relief. But At the same time, there's a whole other docket or kind of listing of decisions that often flies under the radar. And it's known as the emergency docket or shadow docket. That's what we're going to get into today with our guest, Stephen Vladek. He is a law professor at the University of Texas and author of the new book, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's start with a quick definition. What is the shadow docket and why do we call it that? Yeah. So it's a term that was coined by a law professor at the University of Chicago in 2015, basically to describe all of the stuff the Supreme Court does other than those big fancy merits cases that you just alluded to, other than the 60 or so fancy decisions the court hands down each term, largely in May and June, the ones that we're used to thinking about when we think about the Supreme Court. It turns out those decisions are only about 1% of the output of the Supreme Court, and that actually the other 99% is these unsigned, unexplained orders that don't usually matter to us, but actually matter to us more than never. Um, And in the last six or seven years, we've actually seen, you know, have much broader, significant, visible, real-world impacts that makes the fact that they're unsigned and unexplained kind of a problem. Yeah, I was looking at the list of sort of what's been done on the shadow docket recently, and a lot of it is sort of whether or not people on death row should have their executions stayed or not. And I guess that's what you're talking about when these are cases that may not impact the everyday lives of of most Americans. But what other kind of cases are you seeing in the shadow docket? Yeah, so I mean, historically, um, death penalty cases were were one example. They were the primary example of what's known as emergency relief, basically when the Supreme Court is asked to intervene very quickly uh, before something is about to happen. But the real shift that we've seen with emergency rulings in the last six or seven years is away from the death penalty being the dominant source of these rulings and toward rulings about nationwide policies like Trump immigration policies or, you know, vaccination mandates from the Biden administration or statewide policies like the six-week abortion ban in Texas um, or COVID mitigation policies in New York and California. And, And the real shift that we've seen is the Supreme Court being much, much more active and aggressive in upsetting the status quo, in intervening very early in a lawsuit either to put these policies back into effect if a lower court had blocked them um, or to block them if a lower court hadn't. That's a real departure from how the court operated as recently as 10 years ago. I'm curious what's changed. I mean, is it that justices are being asked to intervene more in in high-profile cases or are they merely agreeing to intervene more often? I mean, it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. So, you know, this really starts in 2017 when they're asked to intervene a heck of a lot more often by the Trump administration. So just just to take one data point, 
um, across the George W. Bush and Barack Obama presidencies, two very different two-term presidencies, the federal government, the most frequent litigant before the Supreme Court, only asked the justices for emergency relief for this kind of special ruling a total of eight times in 16 years, so once every other year on average. Um, and those decisions tended not to be divisive. Seven of those, there were no public dissents. Mm. Um, contrast that with the Trump administration, where the Trump administration asked for that kind of relief 41 times in four wow. years, so more than 20 times as often. And I think it was that input, it was getting so many of these applications that led to a subtle but really significant shift in how at least a majority of the justices approached this kind of intervention, where I think in lots of ways, big and small, they really lowered their standards, um, but in ways that inconsistently tended to favor Republican litigants or Republican governmental actors and disfavor Democratic litigants or Democratic governmental actors. You know, it's interesting because I was reading ahead of our conversation that, you know, back in the day, Justice Alito got really upset that anyone was even calling this the shadow docket. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the terminology is funny because it was it was not meant to be pejorative when, mm -hmm. you know, the term was coined in 2015. Uh, Will Bowen meant it really just as this evocative shorthand so that folks like us would talk about it. Um, I think what's, what's fascinating about Alito, he's been the most visible public defender of the court's behavior in this space. He gave a speech at Notre Dame Law School in August uh, or September 2021. You know, he uh, has written separate dissents uh, complaining about this treatment uh, of, the, of the court. But I don't think it matters what we call it. I mean, we can call it the banana docket. Um, the question is, what is the Supreme Court doing with these bananas? And that's, you know, to me, part of why I wrote this book is because I think it's really hard, even for lawyers, but especially for non-lawyers, to look at an unsigned, unexplained order from the Supreme Court and figure out what to make of it. And so, you know, the point is not what it's called. The point is what's actually happening in, you know, these proverbial and metaphorical, if not literal, shadows. Let's talk more about that unsigned, unexplained. How is the process different and why is that a concern? Sure. I mean, so the typical decision by the Supreme Court, the ones we're familiar with, usually you have at least two rounds of briefing where first the parties say, hey, Supreme Court, here's why you should take this case. And then once the court says yes, hey, Supreme Court, here's how you should rule. There's lots of opportunities for other interested people to weigh in to file what are called friend of the court briefs. The justices hold oral argument where there's a chance for everyone to ask questions about the dispute. And then there's this months-long process of the justices drafting an opinion for the court, separate concurring opinions, separate dissents, where guys, they really get to deliberate the issues and they get to fully explain why they vote one way or the other. And those explanations matter not necessarily to persuade us that they're right, but to persuade us that they're acting as judges, that even if we don't agree with the principles the justices are espousing, we agree that they are espousing principles. The problem with you know having such dramatic real-world things like vaccination mandates or access to abortion or immigration policies turn on unsigned, unexplained orders is we are deprived of those explanations. Um, and we're deprived of the ability to measure whether we think the justices are actually acting based on legal principle. And that becomes magnified. That, that gap, that deficit becomes magnified when once you look at the whole body of decisions, the best predictor of how a divisive case is going to come out is not 
some neutral legal principle that might just be unexplained, but is rather the partisan valence of the dispute, it really reinforces the perception, if not the reality, that the justices are partisan political actors. Is the fact that the conservative justices on the court, or at least the the court leaning towards decisions that favor Republicans on the shadow or emergency docket, is it changing the way that cases are being brought to the court as in, you know, an administration asking for something on the emergency docket rather than it maybe working its way up through the system in the traditional pathway? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's true, you know, in sort of in in ways that run the ideological gamut. So just to take two examples, um, you know, President Biden's student loan program that started on the shadow docket that started with emergency mm-hmm. applications from the Biden administration to unblock the program after two different lower courts had blocked it very, very early in the litigation over that program. Um, the court said, actually, we're going to kick this one to the merits docket. But like that could have ended that way. Flip that over, an example from uh, April, West Virginia asked the Supreme Court to put back into effect um, its state law ban on transgender women participating in women's varsity athletic teams at West Virginia public schools. Um, That's the kind of issue that as recently as six, seven, eight years ago, as divisive as it might be socially, the Supreme Court would never have been asked to weigh in at the beginning of the case as opposed to the end. And so we're seeing, you know, every big fight in the contemporary American public policy getting to the Supreme Court faster through these emergency applications, um, provoking the justices to take a position sooner because of these emergency applications, and in the mine run of cases where there's no actual rationale, where the, the, the court's not telling us why it is or is not deciding to intervene in these cases. And if I can just follow up quickly on that, because... If cases do work their way up through the lower court system before they get to the case, before they get to the Supreme Court, I mean, forget oral arguments at the court. You're missing out on all of the oral arguments and briefs and debates from the lower courts that usually inform the Supreme Court's decisions. That's exactly right. And it's such an important point. I mean, take the student loan cases again as an example. When those cases reached the Supreme Court, you know, there were two decisions in the lower courts. Um, in one of them, in the bigger case, the, the challenge by Nebraska and five other Republican states, um, the lower courts hadn't even re- said a word. They hadn't mm. reached the merits of the program at all. They hadn't even decided if the program was legal. And in the other case, there had been a single, very, very early ruling by a district judge in Texas and nothing from the Court of Appeals. So, you know, wholly apart from the fact that this is pushing the court to behave in ways that look more partisan, it's also pushing the court to behave in ways that I think are um, less conducive to what the justices themselves have always said is their best practices. Um, You know, give them time, give them lower court rulings to ponder, give them competing arguments, a chance to develop the factual record, you know, what actually happened in this case. And so what's really going on in the proliferation of these rulings is a pretty significant shift in how the Supreme Court is intervening and being asked to intervene in the whole sort of universe of policy debates in our contemporary society. And I think what's so alarming and what really pushed me to write the book is rather than say, hey, lower courts, hey, parties, this isn't a good idea. Um, The Supreme Court's reaction has been, you know, buckle up, let's go. (laughs) 
You alluded to this earlier, but your book comes out and this criticism is is really emerging. Uh, at the same time, there's a huge credibility crisis of the Supreme Court with, you know, ethical uh, shenanigans involving, you know, Justice Thomas accepting luxury trips from a Republican donor and his wife's political activism, just to name a few. How do you think concerns about the shadow docket or the emergency docket play into questions about the court's credibility? Oh, I think they're an enormous part of it. And I actually think it's it's almost like the opposite side of the same coin as the ethical questions that have arisen in the last couple of months. Because what's going on in both cases is a court that is behaving in a way that is wildly unaccountable. Hmm. Um, you know, historically, and this is something I really try to lay out in the book for folks who may not be as well-versed with the history, you know, the Supreme Court spent most of its first century and a half of existence in this, you know, push and pull conversation with Congress about its job, about what where it sat. It used to actually sit in the Capitol until 1935, um, about the justices' travel, about their docket. I mean, Congress dictated to the Supreme Court exactly which cases it could hear mm. as late as 1891. And that conversation has sort of progressively fallen by the boards, so much so that now, you know, we actually are surprised when Congress tries to assert itself. Chief Justice Roberts says, you know, when he's invited to testify about the ethical issues, it would raise separation of powers concerns for the Chief Justice to testify before mm. the Senate Judiciary Committee. That was never true before. And so I think part of what we're seeing with the court today, whether you like the court or hate it, whether you're sympathetic to the conservative majority or not, um, is you're seeing what happens when the court as an institution is just completely unbeholden to the political branches to a degree we've never seen before. I mean, you kind of just went around the next question I was going to ask you, which is what can be done if there needs to be anything done about this? Like, is there any impetus or possibility of changing the way that this works? Sure. I mean, so obviously Congress is, I think, the, the big answer. But there's a, there's a smaller answer first, which is just pushing the court to reform its behavior. And I actually think we've already seen at least some symptoms of the justices moderating their behavior, at least on the shadow docket side of the story, if not on the ethics side. Mm. So Justice Amy Coney Barrett, um, who I think is actually a fascinating figure in the story, has signaled that she's actually going to be less aggressive in granting emergency relief than maybe she was during her first 10, 12 months on the court back in 2020 and 2021. You know, we've seen the court actually shift some of its procedures so that it's deciding less on the shadow docket. Um, and I think that's a result of conversations like the one we're having. That's a result of public awareness of and pushback against this kind of behavior by the court. My hope is that the more we can talk about the Supreme Court in these kinds of institutional terms, and not just as the sum total of the big fancy merits decisions that we're all either going to love or hate, um, the more that actually we'll see that there's actually that there's common cause, or at least there ought to be common cause on ways of making the court healthier. Um, and some of that starts with the court, but some of that has to involve Congress. Um, and Congress asserting itself institutionally against the court, regardless of which party's in control of, you know, which chamber of the of Congress or or which which part of the court. That's a story that was really, really pervasive throughout the first 190 years, 200 years of the Supreme Court's history. And it's completely disappeared in the last 35 years. Part of why I wrote the book was so that folks would start looking at the court holistically and institutionally and not just as something to be assessed based on whether we do or don't like the bottom lines of its individual merits rulings. Wow. 
I'm still stuck on the fact that it's just sort of this is the majority of the cases. Um, okay. Yeah. Steve Vladek is a law professor at the University of Texas and the author of the new book, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. Steve, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. That was so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm so interested in what this is doing to sort of the system more broadly, because I hadn't thought about it until he brought it up about what this means for sort of the information that gets gathered prior to the decisions, you know, like the, the, the amicus briefs and the... Mm-hmm. You know, all these arguments that usually would be made in various courts and everybody getting to weigh in that just doesn't get to happen. And it it makes the court in some ways even more isolated in its decision making. Yeah. And also undermines the the role of these lower courts. Yeah. Um, I'd be really curious to hear what the rest of y'all think about this and how the Supreme Court has been using the emergency docket uh, or shadow docket. And uh, let us know. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. You can also email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org with your thoughts. And we will be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. Welcome back. And now it is time for the news fix. Amy, why don't you go first? Okay. Keeping with the Supreme Court, Mm. uh, one of the big decisions, as you mentioned, that we're awaiting this month um, from the regular docket, the merit docket, um, is about affirmative action in college admissions. And this is a really big deal. Um, It's actually two decisions. A group called Students for Fair Admissions has challenged the consideration of race as a factor at Harvard and at the University of North Carolina. So we're talking public and private universities. The conservative majority of the Supreme Court is expected to rule uh, that any consideration of race and admissions is unconstitutional, which would buck 40 years of precedent. Um, 
I saw a really interesting story actually last week in the Associated Press that looked at how colleges have tried to diversify through other tools uh, in states where affirmative action has been banned, uh, including California, recently Idaho. Um, But one of the examples was in Michigan, which banned affirmative action in 2006. And the University of Michigan tried to recruit more low-income students, hoping that that effort would increase racial diversity as well uh, because of systemic inequalities. Um, So they sent graduates to work as counselors in low-income high schools and offered college prep in urban areas with more Black and Hispanic students. They offered uh, full scholarships for low-income residents and also reduced the number of applications they accepted for early admission, which tends to favor white students. They're mm-hmm. more likely to to take that route. And, you know, the, none of that paid off to the extent that the university hoped. The share of Black and Hispanic students hasn't recovered to 2006 levels at the University of Michigan. And, in fact, Black enrollments have fallen from 8% to just 4%. Um, and I think that just really shows uh, the challenge colleges face because they, they want to have diverse populations. There's tons of research that diversity is good for everyone uh, and good for business as well. Um, But they're going to be, you know, if if the court rules as expected, these schools are going to be struggling to figure out legal ways to to do this. I think it's going to be a big shift in higher education. Yeah. I mean, I remember when that Michigan case came down and it caused, you know, an earthquake in uh, mm-hmm. admissions and, and colleges all over the country because basically everyone predicted that we were going to end up here. And um, yep. sure enough, sure enough. Yeah. And I think the the story in the AP also raises the, the sort of self-perpetuation issue. So if selective colleges admit fewer students of color inadvertently, which they worry they will if they can no longer use race as a factor, the campus becomes less attractive to future students of color. So mm-hmm. it, it becomes just, you know, self-fulfilling. Yeah. And also when you consider, you know, all the legacy admissions, that also makes it self-fulfilling. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. And that's one, you know, as people are trying to, to figure out how to how to do this differently, legacy admissions is one thing that more colleges will probably consider dropping because mm-hmm. it does tend to favor white students. Yeah. And... Certainly the wealthier students. Yep. Oh, boy. Supreme Court, such an interesting place these days. Um, Right. I know. All right. Mine is uh, also in Washington, just down the street from the Supreme Court. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, sort of. Congress, Washington, uh, presidency. So one of the things that was tucked into the Inflation Reduction Act, which was that big climate change uh, bill that was passed last year is that the law allowed the government to start negotiating for the prices of some Medicare drugs, some of the drugs that Medicare purchases. And that is causing a great deal of consternation amongst the pharmaceutical companies. And this time, Merck has filed a lawsuit. Um, They filed this lawsuit today, and it is the first challenge by a drug maker against this law. 
And the challenge is basically saying that giving Medicare the ability to negotiate drug prices will result in a loss of profits that will force them to pull back on developing groundbreaking new treatments. This is in the Reuters article about this. Now Mm. then, (laughs) I would encourage (laughs) folks to look at the profit margins of said pharmaceutical companies at any (laughs) given point in time. And also the fact that Americans pay more for our medications than anywhere else in the world. And um, the CBO analysis of the Inflation Reduction Act and, and this sort of thing figured that the Biden administration's attempt to allow Medicare to negotiate these drug prices could save about $25 billion annually. And that is a lot of money, especially given all this debate that we've been having over the debt ceiling. So I think that one of the reasons these pharmaceutical companies, I know one of the reasons the pharmaceutical companies are also really concerned about Medicare negotiating drug prices is once a price gets lowered for Medicare, then it also affects their pricing power with the private insurers, right? Mm. And so it can push down the prices of things overall. And that would definitely hit their profits. It, it's interesting. So one of the the arguments that they're making is that the law violates parts of the Fifth Amendment that require the government to pay just compensation for private property taken for public use, okay? And then the other one is that the law will force companies to sign agreements conceding that the prices are fair, which Merck claims is a violation of the First Amendment's protections of free speech. And so those are two different interesting arguments for this. And... It's <laughs> it's easy. I'm still trying to get in my head around that last one. <laughs> well, basically, it was it's this idea that you're forcing a company to promise, you know, you're forcing a company to promise something in exchange for, you know, to promise to be fair <laughs> to to get a deal. I don't know, yeah. uh, but. All of this to say, this is something that ha- is going to have a huge impact, not just on the government's bottom line, but also on the bottom line of people who are on Medicare in terms of like co-pays and what they have to pay out of pocket and things like that. And then later down the road, what the rest of us pay, because if these insurance companies decide that they want to keep their profit margins and you know they can't get the money out of Medicare patients anymore, it may end up that people on private insurance start paying more for these things. So... All of that will be interesting to discover as this case works its way through the system. Yeah, and potentially all the way up to the Supreme Court. Potentially all the way up to the Supreme Court. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, boy. All right. That's it for the news fix. Let's do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. Okay, on Friday during our game, Half Full, Half Empty, during Economics on Tap, Kai and I talked about um, the bars that are specifically meant for people to bring their dogs to. And we got this message from Sarah in my hometown of St. Louis. And Sarah writes... I'd like to point out that there are a few dog bars in St. Louis, the biggest one being Bar K, like bark. 
<laughs> got it. <laughs> it's a huge fenced-in dog park that has multiple bars where you can get drinks, people snacks, and dog snacks. There's a whole dog menu that includes beef stew and chicken risotto. These are for dogs, really. <laughs> Fancy. <laughs> These are for dogs, really. Um, okay. I, I mean, I don't have a problem with it. Just probably. And I look, I love dogs. And so I might go to a dog bar if I feel like I just want to, like, pet the dogs but not have to clean up after them, which is my issue with having dogs is I don't want to have to touch mm, the warm yeah. through the plastic. It's bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> just. Uh, but hey it's not for everyone not for everybody but the menu sounds pretty good i hope the people menu is as good yeah for sure (laughs) we also got a message related to a half full half empty topic from jackie in missouri this one's about vr headsets And Jackie writes, my company recently did a VR training where people got to look from a different perspective. For example, one of the taller people got to see the world from a short person's perspective, or you got to see the world from somebody who may have a specific disability or somebody who was colorblind. And that really helped bring the leaders some more tangible perspective. That's so cool. Yeah, I've been very fascinated watching all the backlash against the new Apple VR headset, you know, in addition to the price and everything. But people are like, oh, nobody wants to walk around with goggles strapped on their face. And and I really yeah. think that kind of misses the point for how these things are going to eventually be used, which I really do think it's going to be for stuff like training and education and immersive experiences and gaming and not so much mm-hmm. for you know, meetings and conferences and things like that. I just can't, I, I I can't imagine that ever really catching on. But, you know, yeah. if, if you ever well, watch Well, as somebody Wally. who gets motion sickness <laughs> at the, like, slightest movement, I, I'm, I've just completely avoided them. But here's an example of where I think, actually, that would be pretty cool. I would love to know what a tall person's perspective is. <laughs> I feel like that would just make me more frustrated about the things that I do not get to experience in my life. And I still wouldn't be able to reach the actual shelf. Exactly. (laughs) Um, My sister had her kitchen renovated and and she was quite short and uh, had the cabinets like moved down. So that oh, that's it would great. be, um, you know, much more easily accessible to her. But uh, that was when uh, she tries to sell the house that might come come back and bite her. But as long as she's there, it's awesome. Exactly. All right. Before we go, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the make me smart question, which is what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? This week's answer comes from the amazing Prisca Neely, who is managing editor of the Gulf States newsroom and who wrote that song that I talked about a couple of weeks ago, which was sort of a love song to condiments. Uh, And here's what she has to say. I used to think that age matters uh, a lot more than it does. Um, I used to think that I had to be a certain age to be kind of taken seriously as a professional and had to be a certain age before I could be a manager. And doing some leadership programs, some self-reflection, kind of, you know, encouragement of some of my colleagues, I got over that. I got into my first management job um, at 32. And <clears throat> I've since built a whole team and hired a bunch of reporters and editors who work under me. And in hiring them as well, I've realized that 
age, experience, you know, those things make a difference. But really having the passion and wanting to do the job is something that you can't teach, is something that you can't necessarily learn. And so that matters just as much. So, you know, wanting it means that you can go for it and you can make it happen and do a good job. I love that. Me too. It's nice to hear from Prisca. Yeah, yeah. Prisca is such a wonderful person, even though she likes condiments way more than I do. But <laughs> <laughs> I have to check out this song. I'll send you the link. <laughs> you know, the managing thing is so interesting because, as she said, you can, you have to really want it. And so for me, there will be no age at <laughs> which I am qualified or interested in being a manager. <laughs> well, but I think what she's also talking about is being a leader. And I think that you can be a leader even without being a manager. And, you know, oh, I like that. people already come that. to you here because, you know, you've got all this institutional memory at Marketplace. So you effectively are. Still. I do have some experience. Yes, I like exactly. That. You can be a leader without being a manager. Exactly. All right. What have you been wrong about? You can leave us a voice message with your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Jay's sneaking in the end. Today's episode of Make Me Smart was produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Jay Siebold, with mixing later on by Ming-Shin Quigon. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. Maybe you shouldn't tell your boss that you don't want to be a boss. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Neil. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.